The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for February 19th, 2021. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Uh, You know, uh, uh, (laughs) considering a lot of today's show is going to be wrapped around the theme of those that have gotten rich because they animate at times the worst instincts we have in politics. It seems fitting that we begin with uh, a remembrance of Rush Limbaugh. Longtime listeners back when this was a little bit more of a comedy-oriented show will remember uh, uh, that we, we at times used to open this program with Rush Limbaugh reading rap lyrics. You're, you're a fine mother. Why don't you back that ass up? Uh, obviously, he's been a, a animating force in any kind of one mic political uh, content ever. So there we go. Rush Limbaugh, dead of 70. The greatest tribute to his work is that everybody uh, stayed fighting over him for another 24 hours. But that's all we're going to talk about Rush. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Lincoln Project on this particular episode. Uh, I've got a lot for him. Specifically, as more and more has come out about that organization, a lot of things that I felt about them throughout this entire process have kind of been bubbling up. I'm going to let them all go in a few minutes. We also have a, a, a great mailbag, including some conversations on Gina Carano, uh, some some backlash to the backlash on whether or not I'm a hypocrite for moving to Texas. And we're going to get a little bit into whether or not China is going to find a patsy country for the origin of COVID-19 after the World Health Organization was basically led on a tour of Wuhan and uh, uh, gave voice to the idea that it might not have originated in Wuhan, but come in on frozen meat. We'll discuss that. We will also be visited by our money man, Dave Leventhal, who's not only going to talk to us about the Lincoln Project and how much they made, but it's also going to give us a great x-ray into the world of super PACs, how much they play along with each other, exactly how much money are going into them, and some of the weird back and forth that happens, including this little tidbit. Did you know that Stacey Abrams Super PAC put in a lot of money to the Lincoln Project? And, and, and whether or not those bedfellows make sense to you, why would one pack give to another pack? 
Makes you think I am on. But There isn't much in this election year that can be described as normal. But among the most abnormal is that a group of lifelong Republicans, political strategists for Republican candidates for the last 30 years, have banded together to mount a rogue offensive aimed at defeating the sitting president of their own party. They call themselves the Lincoln Project, named for the party of Lincoln, which they allege has gone so dangerously astray under President Donald Trump that they've decided to take the strategic and ad-making firepower they've trained for years on Democrats and turn it against their own. The Lincoln Project was launched in a very D.C. manner in the most D.C. of places. In a dead news zone six days before Christmas in a Washington Post op-ed. The year since that moment, saw the band of former Republican operatives raise hundreds of millions of dollars, cut advertisements, earning millions of views, and declaring victory in their ultimate goal, to see Donald Trump defeated. But their contributions to that cause, in my opinion, were negligible in the morass of general election and the pandemic which defined it. All they did was cynically grift off our most cynical instincts. Even worse, the righteousness and the money enabled truly awful behavior. A boorish old boys club rife with sexual harassment and self-dealing. You know, everything they hated about Donald Trump, the reason they were banding together and systematically trying to eliminate Republican influence in the first place. As I record this, their alliance is in shambles. One founder walked away amidst his daughter begging for her emancipation on TikTok. Another, after revelations that he used the organization as a mill to prey on young gay men hoping to break into politics. Through it all, finances revealed that the operation was a boondoggle hovering so much money to the founders' own consulting firms that it alienated their lone female leader. The Lincoln Project sucks. And if you supported them, you should feel bad. Here's why. John Weaver feels it's the party that's betrayed him. I mean, look, Leslie, we've gone from caring about character, rule of law, defending the Constitution, a cogent national security policy, free trade. Where are all those issues? No one cares about all the issues that we fought for. The biggest reason why people defend the Lincoln Project is because it worked. Donald Trump was bothered by the ads that they ran. They did have high retweet counts. And ultimately, you can look at the scoreboard. Donald Trump lost the election because white suburban men abandoned him. That was the difference from 2016 to 2020. White suburban men voted for Biden instead of Trump. 
And you can say, who else is being catered to when you're doing ads that evoke the greatness of Ronald Reagan in comparison to the chaos and awfulness of Donald Trump than white suburban men? This is exclusively for, 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 the, for the chets of the world. And if you're simply looking at, at it like that, then I, I can see where you would get that point. But allow me to offer this counterpoint. While they certainly identified a demographic for which was right to switch, if you remove the Lincoln Project from the election, I still think that the people who voted for Biden are going to vote for Biden. Mostly because the pandemic happened. The number one thing that people were voting about was the pandemic. Trump handled the pandemic bad. And unless you're actually going to make the argument that the Lincoln Project got so inside Trump's head that he now had no idea how to handle the pandemic, then I don't think that anything that they put online was particularly effective to the actual outcome. Here's what they did do. Make popular, politically themed videos. Two million, a hundred, two thousand, four hundred minutes with just one president so unhinged and unfit. Two million, a hundred, two thousand, four hundred minutes. How do you that is Randy Rainbow. Randy Rainbow made himself a YouTube celebrity, uh, about 665,000 subscribers as I am looking at here, because he made mean videos about Donald Trump. He also makes money off this, not only on YouTube AdSense, but through merch. So... My argument is that if you believe the Lincoln Project had that much of an effect on the election, then you have to give an equal amount of the credit to Randy Rainbow. The difference between Randy Rainbow, YouTube song parody man, and the Lincoln Project is that the Lincoln Project brought in tens of millions of dollars for their work. And that money went to bad, bad people. The worst is John Weaver, somebody for whom has just now had a reputation that apparently has been around for a very long time come to light. And that is the fact that he is openly predatory toward young men. He has done this in politics behind the scenes for a very long long time, or at least people in the know say that he's had a reputation for as long as he's been a national figure. Weaver and Steve Schmidt previously worked for John McCain, and we're going to get to that in a second. But as the names and DMs and evidence about Weaver, not just in the past, but specifically with the Lincoln Project, creating a direct pipeline for young gay people who want to make their way into politics where Steve Schmidt is saying, hey, would you like a job? And then immediately afterward, hey, let's uh, turn the conversation to sex. Here was one message as reported by the New York Times. 
help you other times, give you advice, counsel, and help with the bills, and you help me sensually. This stuff has been out there. It was initially broken, at least in this version of it, by this guy, James Gadurski. It has since been reported on in many other outlets. Meanwhile, Steve Schmidt, one of the co-founders of the group and who worked with Weaver, said its leaders only learned last summer from social media posts that Weaver uh, uh, had any kind of uh, situation like this. Quote, there was no awareness or insinuations of any type of inappropriate behavior when we became aware of the chatter at the time. I find that very, very, very Hard to believe. What I find easier to believe is that these odious political operatives understood that a money fountain they had very rarely seen in their lives was flowing at such a rapid rate they didn't want to turn it off. And again, these guys are bad. This was Megan McCain. Megan McCain, who has, has not talked about the Lincoln Project at all, but has a long history because John McCain was probably the biggest name, and especially with his relationship with Trump, there, there was part of the ethos of the Lincoln Project was that this was the McCain-style never-Trumper coming back in a big way and taking down Donald Trump. The only problem with that is that John McCain and the McCain family hated Weaver and Schmidt. And by the way, this is something that I've heard off the record years ago because of how they acted during the 2008 campaign. And I believe it was Steve Schmidt who participated in the Game Change movie that did not have a flattering portrayal of John McCain. But this is Megan McCain. She wrote a, t- a tweet thread about this. I've been very hesitant to comment, but since my deceased father keeps getting invoked, I'll say this. John Weaver and Steve Schmidt were so despised by my dad, he made it a point to ban them from his funeral. Since 2008, no McCain would have spit on them if they were on fire. My heart goes out to the victims of John Weaver. It's abhorrent and evil. Everyone who knew that this was going on deserves to be held accountable. I hope that anyone who covered this up never works in politics ever again. And I'm presuming that that's a subtweet to everybody else that's involved in the Lincoln Project. She concludes, what disgusts me so much is that anyone who would engage in such awful behavior and potentially illegal behavior would use their media associations with my father to gain opportunities. My dad was betrayed by you, hated you for it, and we all know it. Oh, might I also add that the youngest that Weaver targeted was 14. That's the kind of people that we're talking about. And they were rewarded with tens of millions of dollars because they aroused a righteous anger from liberals and never Trump conservatives. The hunger for these videos, the idea 
that Donald Trump was so odious that we could make him feel bad. We could live rent-free in his head for just a few moments. That hunger was so great that $90 million came in to the Lincoln Project. And indeed, as we're going to talk about with Dave Leventhal, tens of millions of those went back out and were spent. But we don't know all of it. And the reason why we don't know all of it is because a substantial portion of that went to the consulting firms of some of the members. So we don't know how much each one of these guys got paid. Here are the hard numbers. Of that $90 million, 20.8 went to Lincoln Project Treasurer Reed Galen's firm, Summit Strategic Communications, and 18.7 million went to Tusk Digital, run by one of the co-founders, Ron Steslow. And to add insult to injury, not only did they look out for each other when it came to protecting predatory behavior, and there is other reporting to suggest that indeed everybody in that organization knew what Weaver was up to. Not only did they take in money by the handfuls, but their female co-founder, Jennifer Horn, left the organization a few weeks ago. And the reason why, according to the Lincoln Project, was that she dared to ask for an immediate signing bonus payment of $250,000 and a $40,000 per month consulting contract. Let me break that down for you. Not only did this organization, the one I just described, the one that is secretive in terms of these awful, awful things that were happening, that had all the money, when they had a contract dispute, when there was a money dispute with one of their few female voices, not only did they go their separate ways, but they had to torture on the way out. And the way they torched her was being a greedy, greedy woman. The gall on these guys. Just staggering, staggering. And that's not the worst. Past that, they actually re released what we, we presumed at the time were hacked DMs between Horn and a reporter, presuming that that would make Horn look bad. Spoiler alert, it didn't. And the Lincoln Project deleted those tweets. Guys, I don't know why the Lincoln Project riles me up so much. Maybe it's because my only goal with this show is to try to talk about electoral politics in a way that makes a transactional sense so you can then align your personal feelings one way or another and try to maximize your ability to get something done. And the Lincoln Project to me is just blood sport for the sake of blood sport. They wrap themselves around the concept of unity while exploiting our inhumanity toward each other. They are perfect parasites. 
as this stuff comes to light, as we review what happened in 2020 and really since 2016 in the cold light of day, I only hope that we can all look at these grifting scumbags and say, I'm sad that they made money and I hope to not give people like this money in the future. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. You can always send us an email. Uh, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Rudy. Rudy writes, I'm writing this in the middle of the Justin, you hypocrite. How dare you move to Texas segment of the most recent episode. Someone said, I'm surprised you aren't moving to Seattle because the property values probably went down there. Well, I'm a real estate agent here. They haven't because a ton of people are still moving up here. And they're usually from California. So, in case you were wondering, Seattle's real estate is still a, a garbage fire. And by the way, that's been the case for a long time. Because not only does Seattle have uh, uh, the problem that people want to leave California and go there because they think it's cheaper. Well, it is cheaper on some level. But also, they've got their own gigantic tech industry between Amazon and Microsoft. Harry writes... Uh, read Brian's comments on last week's show about canceling due to social media posts is dying down and Gina, uh, Gina Carano still being on the Mandalorian is evidence of that. Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't tell, we recorded that before Gina Carano. Uh, I mean, was she fired? Was she fired from the Mandalorian? We don't know. We don't know if she was fired from the Mandalorian. We don't even know if there is going to be a third season of the Mandalorian. The more I look into that, the more it's very weird. It's very weird because Pedro Pascal got announced at, on a competing streaming service with The Last of Us. Obviously, The Mandalorian is a massive show for Disney+, Plus, so you would expect it to continue. But would Pedro Pascal just be a, uh, a voice on it? I don't know. Ken writes, Brushwood said something like, quote, people out there throwing stones are the only ones susceptible to being hit by rocks, end quote. This is a surprising statement from somebody who was randomly targeted once by 4chan on a lark. He was savvy enough and handled it well, and I'm glad he's able to forget it, but it sure scared the hell out of me. Like you, I could give two S's about Gina Carano's political opinions, but when somebody is insta-canceled, I can't help myself. I have to look into why. Maybe it's to avoid hitting the same offending pothole, or maybe I'm a rubbernecker on the information superhighway, making the problem worse. I get how she posted uh, things that were ill-advised and problematic, but I wouldn't say she was throwing stones. And I can certainly picture how somebody who isn't media savvy and probably doesn't have a university degree in sensitive studies could post such things without being a radicalized, transphobic anti-Semite. Anyway, I still got those Cubans in my drawer, saving my uh, saving it for the day that my cancellation comes. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again. I, I don't know why she was fired. I don't. I do not know why she was fired. I, I know that there was a public outcry 
I now know that once the outcry got large, there became a counter outcry to talk about how that outcry was was big. But the more you read into the Mandalorian stuff specifically, you realize she wasn't under contract. Uh, they're, they're, it's not like they had a plan and then they went away from it, or maybe they did. I don't know. Showbiz stuff is really, 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 really weird. So I would draw on other examples when it comes to cancellation where somebody had a job and was fired. Like I would say you, what's happening at like the times with their science reporter. That to me is a clearer example of, okay, this guy had a gig, now doesn't have a gig anymore. Uh, you know, the the weird for hire world of Hollywood wouldn't be the place that I looked first. Andrew writes, on the free speech issue, is this actually relevant to Trump's impeachment trial? Impeachment, as I understand it, is a political solution to political problems. It's not a criminal a prosecution. The First Amendment, in, re in relation to what Donald Trump said on January 6th, shouldn't matter. The only thing that matters is if Congress collectively agrees that the president breached his duties to the country. Do I have this wrong? Andrew, no, you don't. They didn't. We march on. Cable Ninja writes, I need to take exception with the idea that I heard during episode 150 of PX3. I feel the need to push back on the implication that to be a reasonable person, we need to give all information inputs equal weight and that their inherent value will determine which live and which die. Some ideas are inherently dangerous. And by waiting for them to run their course, people can and do die. In my humble opinion, by even giving Q and that ilk the same space as Newton's laws of motion, we only perpetuate things like the events of January 6th or Charlottesville. I'm not talking about single actors with toxic ideologies that drive them to harm others. There will always be unstable people. But what about coordinated mass action? Yes, by making smoking no longer cool, that particular behavior is decreased. But wasn't it the ban on advertising that broke Camel's back? How many people died while we were making that turn on smoking? Can we afford the damage to societal norms while we wait for these toxic political ideas to work themselves out? While I have no idea what the solution might be, we have all seen what happens when these ideas are not actively resisted. Cable Ninja, the question to me is what is active resistance? And I'm glad you brought up Q because Q has been chased to the ends of the earth. There is no, Q is not dropping on Facebook. It's not dropping on 4chan. It's dropping after it was chased out of polite society on 8coon. It's hard to get to 8Qn. It's annoying to get to 8Qn. It's an unpleasant place to be. It is, in comparative uh, uh, world, if we're going to worry about whether Gina Carano can be Cara Dune, then the place that the Q stuff is emanating on is the volcanic vents of the internet. And yet, we saw what happened on January 6th. 
My question to you, Cable Ninja, is in 2021, can we stop the signal? Or do we have to build a society that is better resistant to it? I do believe that there has always been an element and a thirst for these kinds of bizarre, conspiratorial, and yes, I agree with you, dangerous ideas. I just don't think there's a button that we're just not brave enough to press that ends them. I believe that it is our duty to have a an, an inclusive enough society that we can stem these on a societal level and not a censorship level. Because quite frankly, when we believe that we are only one button press away from getting rid of these ideas, we often simply empower some really, really, really weird people to start deciding what is good and bad for us. And once we give that up, which we have to a certain extent already, I don't know how much we get it back. And finally, Ken writes, Justin, I will mail you some form of voucher for a free steak dinner if the CCP doesn't try to blame Canada for COVID-19 within the coming year. I love this bet. I would bet it in, in Vegas if they gave me odds. I love the idea that that uh, China would go full blame Canada and it would be for, uh, uh, you know, them in prison or, you know, uh, holding the Huawei executive or whatever. I don't think logically that's who it's going to be. In fact, I was talking to another friend of mine and he's like, no, it'll be a South Asian country. They'll get some prime minister or some health official that'll say, yep, it was us. We're the ones who sent the tainted meat, the frozen tainted meat. We caused COVID. We sent it to Wuhan. They opened it in Wuhan. Whoops, that's us. Some South Asian country. We caused it. That's what I would guess. They're, they're, they're going to get a patsy. Um, That's conspiratorial. <laughs> And I know that it's it it is uh, hypocritical for me to talk about uh, you know being uh, empathetic and and creating a society that welcome people in, but I can be a little cynical too, and I'll be cynical. I think that they are going to they being the the Chinese Communist Party will find a South Asian patsy to take the blame for COVID, and that about wraps it up for us today. Email us right now, theyoungamerican at gmail If you would like to support this show, then you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Look, if you want to hear me light into Ted Cruz, I I, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it when, when free podcasts really lean into like you gotta hear this thing I did you gotta hear this thing I did it's over a paywall I try to do it sparingly but I know there's a lot of people listening to this that are like oh I was hoping you'd talk about Ted Cruz guess what I talked a lot about Ted Cruz flying to Cancun while his state is in a massive once in a century crisis 
you want to hear it, well, guys, this is why you got to get on the $3 club. Head to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, sign up at the $3 level, and you will get your custom RSS feed. You just take that to the podcatcher of your choice, enter it in there, and you're done. It's over. You know exactly everything that I will do on this feed if you go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, sign up at the $3 level, and get Four podcasts a week. PX3 immediately doubles. Goes from a two podcast a week experience to a four podcast a week experience. And the bonus episodes are basically everything but the interviews. So if you like my take on stuff, it is indispensable. TakePoliticsSeries.com Dave Leventhal is a senior Washington correspondent for the new D.C. Bureau of Insider covering politics, policy, and power in the nation's capital. But y'all know him as our money man. We spoke with him while I was still in quarantine, which will explain the difference in our our, our mic quality from what you're hearing now to what you're going to hear me in a second when I say welcome to the show, Dave. So let's get to the welcome to the show, Dave. Welcome back to the show, Dave. It is a delight to be back with you today. Obviously, I've I've got some uh, I've got some grievances with the Lincoln Project, which I talked about early in the episode. But I want to get the the forensic view from you in terms of exactly how much money poured through this organization uh what what top line can you tell us about the kind of cash that came in through the lincoln project over the uh, 2020 cycle well the top top line justin is that it was one of the most successful fundraising political operations during the 2020 election republican democrat whatever yeah, they they were at the top of the heap, having raised uh, almost ninety million dollars over the course of the election, and that's a huge amount of money. That that would that would be like you know presidential candidate level money, not too terribly long ago in U.S. political history, and now as a super PAC, that that can be kind of de rigueur. And for them, it was not only entirely possible for them to do, but it became reality when they became this really sexy option for both uh, Democrats who hated Donald Trump and also anti-Trump Republicans who hated Donald Trump. These were kind of the, you know, the unpredictable new guys on the block who didn't fit the standard binary political mode. And these were a bunch of Republicans who wanted a Democrat to be elected. So that in and of itself was quite attractive. And they attracted a lot of Democrats money. Okay. I mean, you had Senate majority PAC, a Democratic super PAC giving seven figures to this group. You had (laughs) fair share action, which is a Stacey Abrams organization giving money 1630 fund, which is not at all a household name, but is this very, very deep pocketed Democratic dark money nonprofit organization, which gave three hundred thousand dollars and i could give you a few more examples Uh, so you know the bottom line for them 
the bottom line for the Lincoln Project is they had money coming into their coffers from almost every which way. In a way, they they had more money than they could possibly spend, and that that bared itself out in the sense that they were not just spending money to defeat Donald Trump, which they did spend a whole heck of a lot of well into the eight figures and other Republican candidates, uh, but a lot of the money was going to people who were run by the very people who were running the Lincoln Project. So <laughs> yeah, big shocker there, right? I think that they could figure out a, a, you know, what to do. What are we going to do with all this money? I, I do want to interrogate something here, and, and that is that PACs that are raising a ton of money just gave money to other PACs? They just subcontract <laughs> what, what they're supposed to do with all this money that's coming in? This may be the first time that some people are hearing about this, but let me stand here and tell you that this happens more often than you think. In some cases, we found three, four, five different political organizations daisy-chaining payments together, which makes it incredibly difficult to follow the money in some cases, but makes it very easy for money to be hit if you don't want to be clear on who is ultimately getting the money. So yeah, this is happening uh, to, or happened to a great degree with the Lincoln Project. It happened with Joe Biden. There were a number of different political organizations who were supportive of Biden, where the ultimate donor made a contribution to one committee, which then gave to another, which then gave to another which ultimately spent money in support of Joe Biden or in opposition to Donald Trump. Both sides do this. This is not, you know, playing both sides here. This is not a, some sort of false equivalency argument. It's just reality in politics that this is the way that big money politics oftentimes does work and it, the the law allows it. So they're not doing anything illegal. They're just using the tools and the weapons, if you will, that are available to them as political groups that are very lightly regulated with very few laws that they have to worry about. And they spend crazy amounts of money as a result of there being a sort of this free for all that they can enjoy and the laissez-faire campaign money situation that they find themselves in and we find ourselves in. So when you say it's hard to find the money it's because somebody gives a a donation to, let's say the the just to use the example that you already laid out, the Stacey Abrams pack, and then the Stacey Abrams pack uh, uh, agrees that they're going to forward it onto the Lincoln Project because they don't want to show whoever is giving the Lincoln Project money doesn't want to show that they're paying directly to the Lincoln Project. Is is that a a a decent way to explain it, or is there a better way? Well, well, let's track from the end and go back to the beginning. Okay. So ultimately, Donald Trump gets hit with some very, very nasty political ad. It might be on television. It might be a Facebook campaign, whatever. Yeah. So so there's a an expenditure that beats up on Donald Trump. And when you look at the record, that expenditure seems to be coming from the Lincoln Project. OK, well, then you ask the question, where did the Lincoln Project get its money from? to fund that ad. And I mentioned one group called the 1630 Fund. Well, they spent a lot of money giving it to the Lincoln Project. Okay, so take another step back to the 1630 Fund. What are they? Well, they are a democratic nonprofit organization that doesn't, by the nature of who it is and the nature of what it is, have to reveal where it is getting its money from. So when you take and you jump from the 1630 Fund back yet another step to all right, well, who's funding the 1630 fund? Uh, there can be a big old question mark there. And we don't know ultimately who the donor is because the law doesn't require the 1630 fund to reveal whether it's George Soros or 
Steven Spielberg or your mom. Like, yeah. we don't know. And that's just the way that it works. And that's just one example of many, many out there in politics, again, on both sides, where you can have these three, four, five step processes. And it, it does make it very difficult for reporters who follow this stuff. And it makes it extremely difficult for people who are just trying to answer a basic question about politics, which is, all right, who's funding this attack at? Who, who's sponsoring this campaign? The ultimate reality, the ultimate answer oftentimes is very difficult to see and doesn't reveal itself easily. That's that's kind of crazy, especially when you look at the Lincoln Project and, and you see, well, these guys are basically just doing what they would do otherwise, which is running a super negative campaign against a candidate. But instead of uh, uh, having it just be for hire work by a campaign, they decided to make it more public and therefore make a, a ton more money. Do you think this is something that would will, will be replicated by, by other folks going forward? Oh, possibly. There, if there's a, it's like business. Politics is like business in, in the regards is, is if there is a, a whole in the market, if there's an opportunity to be had, if you can fill a need and you can get people to buy into it, then chances are somebody's going to do it. The 2020 election cycle had a big gap in there for people who were Republicans or conservatives or right-leaning independents who didn't really like Donald Trump. And they also had the added ability to attract Democrats to their cause as well, maybe for the novelty purpose of it all, maybe for other reasons. But the bottom line there is that everyone wanted to beat up on Donald Trump. Everyone wanted to make sure that Donald Trump didn't have another four years in the White House. And the Lincoln Project had a number of very high profile people who were associated with it, not the least of which was George Conway, husband of Kellyanne Conway, <laughs> advisor to Donald Trump himself. So yeah. they had the ability through the people who were associated with the Lincoln Project to get on cable news anytime that they wanted to have a very high profile. It wasn't just one or two people, but several. Steve Schmidt, for example, the former John McCain top advisor. Uh, you know, the, these are folks who are household names, in, at least in the Washington world. And we're fairly well known beyond that, too, definitely in the Twitter sphere. When we talk about this being something – well, here, hold on. Before I get into the self-dealing, let me ask you the reverse question, the one I just asked you, which is whether or not it's going to get replicated. Have we seen anything like this in the past? Is, is, you know, did, did, the, did the Lincoln Project use any blueprint of a super PAC that we have seen in, in uh, past elections that maybe didn't get the kind of coverage that this one did? Well, they were unique because of what they were. Uh, and, and again, just going back to the notion of them being a bunch of Republicans. Very well known who, in their in their industry. Right. Yeah. So in that way, they were unique. But to the question of what blueprint did they use, they used a very what's now almost traditional way of running a super PAC. Super PACs are not like political campaigns, which are sort of these very deliberate operations that support a specific candidate are there to get that candidate elected and in and have you know quite a quite a number of rules and regulations governing them with super PACs it's a whole different universe i mean i don't know super PACs are kind of like the blue white stars of politics they blaze into existence they burn hot and bright and then they just 
flame out or they go supernova. And in the case of the Lincoln Project, I mean, they truly exploded. And and it's a question right now as to whether they're even going to exist. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lincoln Project just ceases after spending 90-odd million dollars during <laughs> election 2020 to not even be around anymore uh, in a matter of of weeks or months. Now, that remains to be seen. They may yet find some way to pull themselves out. But with super PACs, you can reinvent yourself almost with the same people or some coalition of the same people under a different name. It, it's a uh, it's like when corporations, they, they go bankrupt or and they reorganize under a different name or, you, you know, you have ValueJet or, you know, one of those companies, yeah. that, Enron or whatever, that that just completely have the, the, the worst possible thing happen to them and, and they reorganize and suddenly they're something else and they hope people forget about what happened before. And super PACs are like that times three. And there's nothing stopping a super PAC from just simply shutting down its operation. And like the proverbial Phoenix from the ashes, just uh, rising anew uh, on, under a different moniker. When, when we say self-dealing, uh, when we say that they certainly paid themselves a lot, uh, uh, where on the scale of this kind of project was the amount of money that the Lincoln Project funneled to the consulting firms of its founders? We're, we're probably on the six, seven, eight range. I, I've done a lot of reporting into super PACs or other political committees uh, that we can, I think, very fairly define them as scam PACs meaning that they raise uh, a whole lot of money and effectively none of the money or a very small portion goes to anything that resembles political advocacy <laughs> yeah. or supporting a candidate. So pretty much for every $100 they raise, about you know, $95, $98 worth of that is going into the pocket of some consultant, consulting firm that they run themselves or to the consulting firms of their buddies or whatever the case may be. The Lincoln Project is not that, so I want to make that very clear. They spent tens and tens of millions of dollars to go after Donald Trump, to go after other Republican candidates, as I mentioned. So they, they were doing real things in politics. It, it would be absolutely unfair to call them a, a scam operation. Now, they're getting accused for being a really grifty operation. Yes. And, and I Th this, they... this is what I think our listeners are here for. Let's let's please very articulately describe the difference between a scammer and a grifter in the world of politics. A, a scammer, as I alluded to just a moment ago, is somebody who is getting $100 and almost all of it. And they spend 98 of it for themselves, right? Either so, going right into their own pocket or going into the pockets of, of their people. It, it's all about just basically making money. Money while, in, money uh, out. Deceiving people that they're using that money for a different purpose. Okay, so that's a very that's a specific type of political scammy operation a scam pack. Now, a operation that is that that can be accused of grifting uh, or an operation that can be accused of maybe using its money not in the most efficient or above board kind of way. And I, I'm not accusing the Lincoln Project or any other pack of doing this. But, uh, you know, to repeat what others are charging the Lincoln Project of right now is that there was a lot of self-dealing going on in their opinion. And we can see from the data, if you just look at the data in a very objective way, there were people who were involved in the Lincoln Project who were getting a, a very sizable cut of the money and a cut of the business that was coming the way 
of the Lincoln Project from the tens of millions of dollars that was pouring into it. Now, is that at its face patently illegal? No, it's not. Uh, could there be potential problems with that? Yes, absolutely. And I don't think we have uh, all the data available to us at this point, or we know all the full story about how the Lincoln Project was uh, was doing its accounting. Uh, so there's a whole lot more to the story that I suspect is going to come out in the many weeks to come. And given the fact that everyone in the Lincoln Project seems to be uh, just, you know, ratting everyone else out, then <laughs> pay attention to that, too. And, and, and that'll be part of of the story going forward. But yeah, uh, the, the accusations of the Lincoln Project uh, running a, a pretty strong grift are, are real. Those are things that it's going to have to deal with in a major way. And it, it, it may be a reason and a cause for the Lincoln Project to shut down or radically, dramatically change its operations going forward in a way where that's not going to be a thing in the future. Can you explain also the the, the practice of paying into a, a consulting firm and how it can uh, obscure like where we then know the money goes from there, because just like the money coming in from these dark money places, it, it seems like them going into the consulting firm is kind of the end point of our trackability of this cash, right? The the spending of political committees uh, when it comes to things that aren't overt political advocacy can be notoriously opaque. I'll get to the Lincoln Project in 20 seconds here, but one that we've been writing about a ton lately is the Trump campaign, which quite literally was running a shell corporation within its own campaign. It was a consulting firm called American, American-made Media Corporation, uh, or consultants rather, and it uh, was something that the money would go into it, and we would have no idea where the money was ultimately going. Yeah. Now, we reported and revealed that it was in part going to Trump family members, okay? And it was going to Brad Parscale's corporation and company and, and various other places. But I, I bring that up as an example to say that you can have plenty of other campaigns or super PACs that do exactly the same thing. Or you can have a super PAC in the case of the Lincoln Project, which is using firms that uh, get paid a quote-unquote consultant fee or consulting fee. And then we don't know where the money goes beyond that. Did it go to a specific person? Yeah. Was it going to you know, place TV ads? Was it going for any of a dozen other things? Well, ultimately, we don't know because they don't have to say and, and they don't reveal it. So what can you do about that? Well, Congress. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before, yeah. before, before we get into that, I just want to tag on some of this uh, uh, color to the thing that you just said, because it was allegedly Washington D.C. gossip and backbiting within the Trump campaign, complaining about how much that Brad Parscale was making in that shell corporation that led to the Lincoln project to make an ad about how much of a lavish lifestyle Brad Parscale was, was living in that apparently contributed to Brad Parscale getting fired from the Trump campaign in general. So just, just so everybody knows, this is the meta argument that is being made. The, the Trump campaign was hiding their money and enriching somebody. So the Lincoln project who is hiding their money and enriching themselves can make an ad that embarrasses Pascal and eventually damages his political career. What a time. I mean, you just described sort of like the Venn diagram of Ouroboros. It, it, it's just <laughs> absolutely out of control. 
when when you take it to its you know most extreme extent, which in this case it is, and uh, and, and the ultimate sort of both sides using the same very extreme and kind of political weapons to uh, to, to do their thing, and oftentimes do it out of the public side. Uh, all right. So you were saying uh, uh, Congress guiding uh, uh, the the spending and tracking of the money within these packs. Yeah. Real quickly. I mean, Congress could pass a law that that basically made this illegal or required campaigns and super PACs and political action committees to reveal the ultimate payee of their money or to get every step of the way track where that money is going. Now, political committees, and they, they have a somewhat fair point here, say, well, that's going to be really difficult. And how can we track every last little penny pouring through this route or that route? That's not how politics work. So there would be some logistical hurdles, yes, to, to get over for that to happen. But there are already rules on the book that make this something that is supposed to happen better than it often does and gets into sort of the dysfunction of the regulatory regime that is set up uh, in the federal government for tracking political money and the spending and the raising of it. So uh, whether any of this changes over the next few years is very much going to be in the hands of Democrats, first and foremost, to to be the agents of change if they choose to do so. There's a bill called H.R. 1, which is kind of the the big omnibus ethics bill, which does get at some of this stuff, but it's competing, too, with COVID relief and infrastructure and about, you know, eight or nine other things that are very high on Joe Biden's agenda. And as we saw about a decade ago with Barack Obama, sometimes you have Democratic presidents who talk a very strong game about ethics reform and campaign money reform and all this stuff. And ultimately, what happens in the end isn't quite what they had uh, rhetorically offered up to their supporters uh, when when they took power. Now, we've talked a lot about so far uh political action committees and the people who run them either being, you know, possibly scammers or grifters. I, I want to separate them from what we're about to talk about now, which is not us using those terms euphemistically or, or, or colorfully to talk about unethical practices within politics, but actual theft <laughs> from political action committees because, and I would suspect the money has just gotten so big. You guys just reported at Insider that there has been $2.7 million in uh, losses from uh, PACs in theft and fraud. So not, not even like, oh, well, well, this guy got paid and maybe it's a little gross that it was more than the percentage that, that he should. This is just out and out oops, I, I got my wallet taken kind of theft, right? Yeah, and it, we found several dozen examples of bad actors, thieves, people who are doing no good and up to no good, plundering political committees at the federal level during just this past election cycle. It added up to at least $2.7 million, and, and that's what we can – See that's what you can verify, right? right? That that we can verify. There could be more, and uh, and and we're continuing to report on this to see if there is more. But still, two point seven million dollars worth of just pure outright old school theft, embezzlement, uh, 
cybercrime, and, and, and it manifested itself in several different ways. And, and it ranged from hackers getting into the account of somebody and stealing money to credit card or debit card numbers being lifted to really old school stuff like somebody stole the credit card that wasn't put in the lockbox of the political action committee or somebody who was running the financial operation for a political campaign or committee put a paper check in the mail and somebody stole the check, washed it, changed it, forged it, and, and wrote it to themselves. So a number of different ways that theft and fraud has happened over the past couple of years. One unifying factor in all of this is that many of the campaigns and committees that we spoke to acknowledged to us that they didn't have the strongest security measures put in place. So they had effectively left themselves open, Justin, to just this very type of activity. And you may ask, well, okay, these, these are probably little mom and pop operations, some congressional campaign in the middle of nowhere that the, the candidate never had a chance of winning. Uh, and that is true in some cases, but also it's Joe Biden. He lost 70 thousand plus dollars his campaign that raised more than a billion dollars yeah uh, and because they they again themselves acknowledged the white house acknowledged to us that they they needed to strengthen their security procedures and and this is maybe the most protected political official in in the country now uh, it was the wisconsin republican party which uh, far and away lost the most money, more than $2 million uh, over, uh, over the 2020 election because of, uh, of issues that they had. And, and that was a huge amount of money in a state that was absolutely critical to Donald Trump potentially winning the White House and $2 million that, uh, that ended up going into the pocket of thieves. So uh, just a couple of examples of the more high-profile cases uh, that uh, really just speak to a kind of an underlying issue here that many political committees need to get a lot better at this kind of stuff uh, in, unless they want to keep getting dinged by people who are, are going to steal their cash. This just feels like the perfect storm, though, right? Like you, you have these these committees that come together, these organizations that come together really fast. They often rely disproportionately on volunteer labor uh, uh, that is just coming in off the streets and if you are a fairly experienced scammer or thief, it seems like no matter what, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for you. And in a world where political spending has never been higher by the dollar amount, this just seems like a really ripe area for fraud. Well, remember what the bank robber Willie Sutton said about why he robbed banks. He robbed banks because that's where the money is. Political <laughs> committees, it's where the money is. This, election, this last election cycle, Justin, <laughs> the price tag was $14 billion. That's about twice what it was in 2016. So, yes, every time we talk about money in politics, we're always saying this is the most expensive election cycle we have ever seen, blah, 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 right? Yeah. But this, this one was really different. It, it was exponentially larger than the one before. There was more money pouring into it by a factor of two. And, and and that really kind of speaks to exactly what you described, that this is all happening so rapidly. You've got organizations springing up all over the place. You've got the ability for very, very wealthy individuals to effectively pour as much money 
into the political process as they want. And when you had an election involving whether Donald Trump was going to be reelected or not, and you had both the House and the Senate truly uh, the the power there and and the power control in in balance, uh, and then you had a special election in Georgia, and you had political overtime, and that truly did determine whether Democrats or Republicans controlled the Senate. It was it was like the the perfect perfect storm of factors making this just a just an unbelievably extreme, um, uh, expensive election that. I hate to tell you, is probably not going to stop there. The uh, the, <laughs> the Republicans and Democrats, uh, they they know the weapons that the others have, and and they're just finding new ways to make bigger and better bombs to to go and attack. I guess each other. yeah. Let me let me let me ask you a, a a question there. Where are we in this mutually assured destruction money bomb uh, uh, um, arms conflict? Like, uh, do do you get any sense that we are? Close to the end was was Trump a supercharge that leaves us at this level, or is it going to recede from here? I I, I don't know if it's going to recede. Uh, so there, two things could make it recede. Number one, the U.S. Supreme Court could get involved in a way that uh, that un, basically undoes uh, things that have happened in the past, such as the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision, which we we was 11 years ago in uh, last month. So that, that's been around for a while. But there's no indication, Justin, that the Supreme Court, especially with its current makeup and constitution, is going to do anything to uh, to, to rein in political spending. So so that's one thing that, that you can almost certainly count on will not happen over the next couple of years as the Supreme Court will, will go back on what it's done in the past. Now, the other thing that can happen is that Congress can pass new laws or Congress can uh, incentivize in one way or another the, uh, the I mean, how best to say this? Uh, Congress could pass <laughs> laws that, that basically reined in money either through incentives making it more attractive to small dollar donors getting involved and big do- dollar donors not. Uh, or it could pass laws that, that truly make it more difficult for big dollar donors to spend money. And it, it might be something, for example, like banning dark money and making it a requirement that anyone who spends money in a political election has to reveal the true nature and source of that money. Now, yeah. Uh, does that happen? Who knows? Okay. Uh, This stuff is highly unpredictable. Could it happen? Yes. Would there be court challenges to that? Quite possibly. So it's dirty. It's messy. There's no clear line or path to it. But I think this really does come down to what truly is the appetite of Democrats now that they have power, now that they have the House, the Senate, and the White House, to get this done. Joe Biden has talked an extremely strong game about this. A lot of House Democrats have talked an extremely strong game about this, but also, too, they've been using all this stuff uh, all the while, too. And yes, they argue, hey, we cannot unilaterally disarm, okay? We we cannot step back and let Republicans just hand it to us while, while we take some ethical, moral high ground. Although you have a Bernie Sanders, for example, who largely did try to take that ethical, moral high ground uh, in a way that other Democrats didn't during the Democratic presidential primary. So there are examples of this happening, but most Democrats are, are not willing to engage in, in such activity or lack thereof uh, in the way that Sanders did. 
And that's the other thing is that the money's gotten so big that I, I almost don't even know where the advantage is anymore. Like, like uh, once you get past a certain level of being just able to afford all of your most expensive television markets and being able to, you know, fund whatever uh, a digital shop you want to you want to fund, which is, I think, uh, a threshold that was blown past by a lot of these bigger ticket campaigns. Like, w where does the money go aside from the consultants? And now we're back at, at the situation that we were talking about before where everybody just kind of takes a bigger payday. Well, it, it goes to the nationalization of some of these elections. We we focus so much on the presidential races, but I, I believe it was something uh, like eight of the 10 most expensive U.S. Senate races ever run were in November. OK. Think and some of the people don't even know. Right. Like, like who is who is Mitch McConnell's opponent? Like uh, yeah. uh, uh, nobody. Can, I defy you unless you're related to her to, to, to name me that person, because I mean, most it was Amy McGrath. I'll tell you. All and right. Guess what? Amy McGrath got got absolutely destroyed by Mitch McConnell, even though she raised one of the greatest amounts of money by any challenger in the history of U.S. politics. She was in the upper, upper echelon of that. But you had races in South Carolina, in Arizona, in not states like Florida and California and New York, where yeah. there are just more people. But in many of these smaller races and many of these smaller states with smaller populations, the vast majority of the money going into those races in those states were coming from anywhere but those states. They were coming from all the big population centers. They were coming from the places with the money. So Texas, California, Florida, Illinois, New York, th those are the big piggy banks out there. And if you've got a really, really hot congressional race or even a house race in, I don't know, Colorado, in South Dakota, well, you know, they don't care where it is. They they care about the national implications of that race. And, and they sure as heck don't care about, you know, soybean farming or, you know, yes. whatever local issue is really hot and heavy in that particular state. They they care about one thing and one thing only, which is the uh, which is the number breakdown in the Senate and the number breakdown in the House. That's what they care about, which is why some, you know, dude in Hollywood or in West Palm Beach, Florida is willing to slap down a million dollars to some super PAC like the Lincoln Project or whatever else and, and make sure that they've got the funding that they uh, they want and they think they need in order to do politics in a way that's going to get a result that they have set out to get. Dave Leventhal, what insider is is it just insider or is it business insider DC political insider? What, what, what do we what do we call it? Well, officially, we have changed our name. We are Insider. That's it. That's it. So Business Just Insider, Insider is a, a part of Business Insider, but yeah, we uh, and and I and I work for the Washington Bureau of Insider, which uh, didn't exist a year ago. So let's yeah, let's let's us. let's let's settle on now. Insider DC Bureau can is yeah, that yeah. is that what we do? We do that. that. That's uh, that's good enough for me, man. Perfect, Dave Leventhal. Always a pleasure, sir. Hey, same. And that'll about wrap it up for us today. Of course, we want to keep the train going. The easiest way that you can help grow this show is by thanking our guests online for them uh, taking the time out of their day to uh, uh, be part of everything. And Dave, look, sometimes this really helps because we're we're interviewing people that have never heard of us before and they it, it, it's great for the show that they feel the love Dave knows the love but if you 
Go to Twitter right now and follow at Dave Leventhal, L-E-V-I-N-T-H-A-L, and you say, great job as always on PX3. I just know he's going to feel great about it. So go ahead and do it. Uh, also, it would I would be remiss if I did not point out that uh, uh, along with all the ways that you can donate to me and this show, and that does still mean something because uh, I'm I'm you know <laughs> buying a house. Like I, there, there's there's a lot that that uh, I do want to make sure that this party keeps going. But if you want to contribute to what is happening in Texas right now, uh, please search Mutual Aid Austin, Mutual Aid Dallas. Mutual Aid Houston. These are citizens who are donating to citizens. I threw money their way earlier today, and uh, uh, I will continue to do it. I would encourage you to please go support those causes. And with that, uh, there'll be other times where I can plug all the different ways that you can give me money. I would encourage you to throw some money their way. Uh, of course, you can always email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And I would like to point out our Titanic $10 tier. Uh, again, we're going to have uh, another email going out uh, for everybody to do their new nicknames, but uh, we're going to do it plain again this episode. Alex, Catherine, Jason, Jay Sulu, Brian, Severio, Jacob, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Neil, Archie, Darren, David, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, David, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, Chris, Just Another Pilot, Mike, Scale, Jim, The Gen, D. Rayleigh, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, and Andrew, if you would like to join their ranks, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more are out here talking about politics, but this, this is the only show that dares talk about all Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.